Attention SLPs and OTs with existing private practices. Are you ready to level up your private practice and your life and make this your breakthrough year? If so, join us for Make More in 2024, a free training offered on Thursday, March 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern to discover how to shift from clinician to CEO. During the training, we'll talk about the importance of maximizing your income, adding revenue streams, setting up systems, and more so that you can ultimately work smarter and build a successful, sustainable, and sellable business. To sign up, just visit growyourprivatepractice.com backslash training. Don't miss the chance to learn how to effectively navigate the growth phase of the private practice journey. See you on the training. Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Private Practice Success Stories podcast. I can't wait to introduce you to Carrie Hinnett. Carrie is in South Carolina and also sees clients in North Carolina. She has a two-location brick-and-mortar private practice with 40 employees. Carrie went from, in the last six years, seeing four kids on Fridays to serving a 1,000 sessions per month for her very large practice. She's committed to hiring the right people and making sure that they have work-life balance, too. She's aiming to be a one-stop shop for families in her area. And not only has she accomplished quite a lot in the last six years, she has wonderful plans for the future as well. So sit back and listen to Carrie's story. My name is Jenna Castro-Casbon. I am part of a group of private practitioners who have taken client care into our own hands. We are skilled clinicians who pride ourselves on providing high-quality care to our clients and their families. We are fighting against productivity requirements, administrative red tape, and unnecessary restrictions. We started our own private practices to take control of our professional and personal lives, of our schedules, of our incomes, of our future. We work hard for our clients, but on our terms. We believe in helping others, but also helping ourselves. We are not interested in competing with each other, because we hope we'll all make it. We are successful private practitioners, and these are our stories. So before we dive in, can you please share your name, your location, and the name of your private practice? Sure. So my name is Carrie Hennett. I'm with Carolina Therapeutics, and I am in the greater Charlotte area. Fabulous. It is so nice to meet you, and I'm really excited to learn more about your private practice journey. So can you start at the beginning and tell us like, you know, maybe how you got started in the career or what your like graduate school or early CF was like? Sure. When I was in graduate school, I actually was a psychology major and didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I had this one professor who said, I'll give you some extra credit if you look into becoming what's now called an RBT, a registered behavior technician. And so that's primarily working with kids that have autism. And so I started to do that. I became really interested in working with kids with autism. I just really loved that population. But within that, I got to see a variety of disciplines. So for those don't know, who, that don't know what an RBT is, it's where you are the direct therapist who provides the ABA therapy that's outlined by a program manager, normally a BCBA, a board-certified behavior analyst. And so for me, 
I worked with some of these kids for 30, 40 hours a week. I wasn't the only clinician, but, <laughs> you know, I, I got to experience a lot of their therapies in their day-to-day lives. And so I decided I needed to go to graduate school, obviously. So it was kind of, do I want to become an SLP? Because that was something I was interested in after seeing some therapy sessions, or did I want to go and become a BCBA? And I kind of wanted to have more of the flexibility. And so I decided to go into school to become an SLP. So as part of that, I went to work for a therapy practice right outside of Charleston, South Carolina. And I essentially did some SLPA type stuff where I took data, I was a camp coach, I did a lot of the administrative duties, that sort of thing. And really saw how a private practice was run, which was really helpful. And I got to see feeding therapy. And I decided right then and there, I wanted to become a feeding therapist. That is what I wanted to do. I got into graduate school. I realized very quickly that feeding therapy is not something that is taught in graduate school. And I just kind of pushed through graduate school. I learned that I didn't really want to be in the schools. I loved working in the skilled nursing facility doing cognitive therapy, but I still just really enjoyed the clinical aspects. From there, I got a clinical fellowship working with an amazing mentor who I still talk with pretty frequently. And she did a ton of feeding therapy. And at that clinic, I worked with a lot of kids with autism. And so I kind of branched out and became a certified autism specialist, which I highly encourage people to do. You're always learning. And so it's beneficial if you find a specific area that you're interested in to really try and find these extra things to show that you are specialized. So I did that. And I'm still hoping Asha will get that like board certification program going for autism. But anyways, I ended up becoming a little bogged down while I was in that private practice. I wanted to take on extra responsibilities. The private practice was owned by a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, and they just didn't understand what I did. I remember I kind of came to my end with working there when the physical therapist said, well, why don't you just diagnose everybody with mixed expressive receptive language delay? And I thought to myself, you know, I don't recommend that you diagnose everybody with a broken ankle. So thanks for taking the time to understand what I do. So I started to branch out. I decided to kind of work on a Friday, seeing about four kids on a Friday. And and I did all the billing. I did all the scheduling. I did all the background work. I went through all of that. And then it just kind of ended up where I I left the private practice that I was at to go work for another private practice. And it was definitely an experience of when one door closes, another door opens. And this was a certain transitional time where, and I, I like to tell this story, especially to clinical fellows, because you need to work for somebody who has a license at stake. And I learned this the hard way because I went to work for somebody who was supposedly in healthcare administration She hired a really great group of people. I thought it was where I wanted to be long-term. She got us all on board. We started to take on clients. And then a month later, she couldn't pay any of us because she didn't understand credentialing and billing and how all of that worked. And so I had a clinical fellow who at the time was like, oh my God, what do I do? Now we don't have a job. I don't have any clients. Can I come work for you? And I was like, "Mm, sure. Yeah, why not? And then all of our clients were like, we really love thank you. Can we come with you? And I was like, sure, let's figure it out. And so from there, it really expanded to include additional SLPs. And then we got a physical therapist 
and I got more contracts, especially within the state. And then it branched out to OT. And then a little over a year ago, about a year and a half ago, we added ABA therapy. So within about a six year, yeah, within about a six year time frame, we went from seeing four kids on a Friday to where now my practice has two practice locations, a clinic, and almost 40 clinicians. That is unbelievable growth in that time period. And it is. It is very much so systematic growth, knowing what you can sustain, as well as understanding what your client needs are and and how to build that. And it's absolutely, absolutely possible. Yeah. And it sounds like you learned some lessons along the way that really prepared you. Every single mistake possible. And you have to adapt very quickly. And so that's absolutely a huge component of it. Yeah. That's one of the things that a lot of times beginners like or people who are considering going into private practice say, well, I'm really afraid of making mistakes or I'm afraid of failure. So what would you say to someone who said that? I would say reaching out to people and networking is really important because you can learn from their mistakes. I remember when I was starting this endeavor, like just a couple months in, I went to Asha and I love Asha and I went to one of their, gosh, it's like the private practice association, their little get together networking things. And I met with their president at the time and I said, all right, I know I only have five seconds of your time, but if you could give anybody one piece of advice, what would it be? And she looked at me and she goes, honey, don't do your own billing. And I took that to heart and she's absolutely right. Like I, I did my own billing for all of a few months and then I found someone else to do it. I I don't have enough time in my day. Let them find a percentage and take that percentage and take that off of your hands. But you have to monitor them. You have to find what works for you, the people that works for you. And as you grow, you're also going to learn that you have to wear many hats. Mm -hmm. That's a huge component. Mm -hmm. And you have to learn to adjust with that. And that's a really, really hard transition. And you have to be willing to make a lot of those mistakes and and they happen, but you just have to kind of power through it. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing with hiring billing specialists, like just like you're a specialist in autism and feeding and everything else, like they are specialists in billing and they, they know the codes like the back of their hands. They know what insurance companies like, what kind of documentation, like they know those things just like you know your things. Right. So that is a great thing to get off your hands. Like, cause, and that helps you grow. There are certain things that you can start off doing. Like when I first started, I did all of my credentialing. I know how to do that. I can go back and do that. I have the security knowing that if my billing specialist just dips out, cause some do, I have a really great one now, but it took time to get there. I had two prior billing specialists that I went through because they, they didn't know what they were doing. And you have to have that open line of communication to understand that you have to trust them to do what they're doing, but also know what they're talking about. So I do think when you first start out, it is important to understand billing, know what it means with basic insurance, know how to communicate that with parents, because ultimately you're going to be the figurehead and you're going to have to be able to explain that to people because people do not understand insurance. So it's very true. Now, let me ask you a question. You said something about wearing many hats. What are your yes. favorite hats to wear? Over the years, it changed. I went to school to be a clinician, and I love being a clinician. That being said, I'll tell you my least favorite hat mm-hmm. is the administrative hat. 
and you have to wear it. But at the same time, what I found is with the transition and the way that you grow systematically is honestly hiring clinical fellows has been really big for our business in the sense of I like to hire people who are really excited to learn and who are really excited to kind of figure out what you're doing. And you have to find strategies to retain people. And so for me, what I have done is I have found even when I can't keep my own private caseload and I have a a small amount that's just for me, I find a lot of enjoyment wearing my mentor hat where I have my mentorship, especially with feeding. Like I mentioned, graduate school, you don't learn about pediatric feeding. You just don't unless you just happen to get a NICU placement, which never happens. And so I I really work on that where I work with my clinical fellows, but even those that have their C's that are interested in changing places or moving to a different skill set, I take on those that have their C's and are like, yeah, I want to learn about about this. And that's something that I really, really enjoy is that teaching component and being able to do that. So that's probably my favorite hat. I love it. So can we talk a little bit about the transition of your four kids on Friday, right? And then (laughs) all of a sudden you had this like kind of shake up at the place that you were working and you just were like, Hey, come on guys, let's go. (laughs) Right. So, so what was that period like for you? It was crazy. It was very, very, very intense, just in the sense of income stability was probably the scariest thing, which I'm sure a lot of people are like, how do you do that? At what point do you pay yourself? And, and those questions. And it that I will say it takes some time. My husband is an attorney. And so for that, I've been able to get a lot of free work (laughs) out of him where he can come in, he can put the contracts together and that sort of thing. But he also supported me through that transitional time. So that was really helpful. So that was a very kind of tedious point because I will say this. So the previous practice that I worked for, they, they did things by the book in the sense of they got me credentialed. I was credentialed with a variety of insurances and then affiliated under their practice. And that's how you're supposed to do it. And so whenever I transitioned out, it was very helpful in the sense that I was already credentialed with a whole bunch of insurances in South Carolina. So I, I, at the time lived in North Carolina, but worked in South Carolina and South Carolina, their Medicaid system is set up to where they have a lot of managed care organizations. So it's, it's Medicaid, but it's subdivided. And I was already credentialed not only with Medicaid, but all of the subdivisions and the private practice that I worked for also had me credentialed with a variety of insurances. So when I left, that was already established. I just had to essentially affiliate myself with my own private practice, but I had to go through all of the contracting components. And so you have to, it's daunting, but it's, it's very, I think for us, it was very, very helpful to get that established correctly the first time. I know a lot of people are like, let me just do private pay. But I'm telling you, if you want referrals and you want to grow systematically and that sort of thing, getting enrolled with insurance is absolutely critical. And that was something that I jumped on with, especially knowing that I was already credentialed, already had that affiliation was very helpful. But getting my company set up and getting the billing structure down from the get-go. The other thing that was helpful that was unintended in North Carolina, I thought to myself, I'm going into homes. I'm providing home health. That's not really 
the case. But I didn't know that because I didn't have the network. I didn't know what was going on. So I didn't know anybody that was doing home health that I felt like I could talk to. And so essentially what I did is I went through the procedure to become a home health care agency because I thought I'm providing home health care. And so anyways, I went through that whole thing. And in order to do that, you have to have a huge amount of policies. And so mm-hmm. your policies include things like no smoking policies mm-hmm. and catastrophe policies and all of those things. And so I ended up writing this huge policy manual starting off thinking that's what I was supposed to do. And it wasn't, I, I didn't meet that. But now that I'm much larger where I do have to have those policies in place, it is really helpful. And it is helpful to go through those things to be able to outline that. I never went and did like a business plan. I know some people have done that, but I think having a policy manual and understanding like, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing it? Where are you going? And having all of that. And it also shows your clinicians and whoever you hire that take me seriously. Like, this is what this should look like. And so it's not just kind of, hi, I'm this one clinician. It really is. This is my company. So I, I worked to really establish that backbone at first. So getting the billing right, getting my policies right. And then honestly, we, and it wasn't just me. It was my first clinical fellow, Julia, who still works for me now, which I love. She and I, we worked our behinds off to network and to build up our referral sources and everything else. So that included getting some marketing materials and going to different places spending time talking to people, that sort of thing. Honestly, the best referral source that I can recommend is word of mouth. Your face and your reputation are the things that really, really matter. And so if people know who you are and they're like, oh yeah, you're that speech lady. What's your name again? That's really helpful. And so we did a lot, a lot of that and just really pushing the envelope to say, hey, my name is Carrie Hennett. I'm with Carolina Therapeutics and just doing doing it over and over and over again. And eventually people start to really know who you are and know you for what you do. And so even for me now, it's really flattering when somebody says, Hey, I really want you as my clinician. And I'm like, I'm sorry, you can't have me. You can have one of my clinicians. They're really great. But it, it's great because people know you for you and right. it's wonderful. Right. And now you also, you have two locations, right? So, yeah. So tell tell the listeners how I just love this idea of like four kids on a Friday to starting this off. And then so how did it go getting your first location? Let's talk about that first. So I tell people a lot about how instances in your practice will pop up and you have to take advantage of them in the sense of so I I knew eventually I wanted a clinic. But I didn't get a clinic until just this year. I knew for me, overhead was going to be way, way, way too much. So you have to recognize when you're at your maximum and when you can expand. And so, for instance, even my administrative assistant, Tina, she is amazing and fabulous. When I first hired her, she was coming in for four hours a month to do filing. Mm -hmm. And she expanded her role to where she's now essentially an office manager. And that's what she's doing. You have to find the people, you have to hire them the right way. You have to see their potential and what they're willing to do. So originally, we were just home health. And then we expanded to have an additional location in Greenville, North Carolina. Mm And the way that we did that was I literally had a clinical fellow, Paige, who I love. And she came to me and she said, hey, I really love you guys, but 
my boyfriend, he's up there in Greenville and mm. can I continue to work for you? And I was like, you know, what? yeah, let's figure it out. And so that's kind of been my mantra of, okay, there's this challenge, but does it have to be something bad? Let's, let's figure it out. And so we did, we expanded to have an additional office up in Greenville. And so we have speech therapy services up there. And then right before COVID, we opened a private practice. So we have that. We work in two different states. We have the intention of opening in Greenville, South Carolina. You have to look for those opportunities. And then also when they present to you, you have to take advantage of them and run with it and not just say, oh crap, that really is terrible. Instead say, how can I turn this around? How can I make this work? What can I do? And understand if you hire the right people, if you find the people that you can trust, you can really expand something to have some a really wonderful practice that is exactly whatever you want to make it. And that's what I think is really wonderful about having private practice. I love that. And speaking of hiring the right people, so what kind of people do you have on your staff? Is it all SLPs or do you have sure. other people too? So we have about half of the practice is medical. So mm-hmm speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, and about half of the practice is now ABA therapy. So to give you an idea, we went from four kids on a Friday to where we see about 800 to 1,000 claims a month. So it it is pretty strategic. That being said, I'm going to say this. Most people don't know about ABA and really how it works, and they function very differently. So for instance, speech OTPT, they may have 30 kids on their caseload and for one clinician, whereas ABA is the opposite. It's very clinician heavy. So you may have two to three clinicians working with one client. And so it just functions very, very differently, but it is, it's very helpful in the fact that you can have different strategies for bringing in money because ABA is very consistent, whereas speech OTPT, you're going to have those weeks where it's it's not a good week. Same way as for ABA, you also have to consider if one of your kids, kids gets sick, that's 30 hours that you're down. So they balance each other out really, really nicely. I would say the majority of our medical side of the practice is speech therapy mm-hmm. and feeding therapy. And I would say about 90% of our caseload is pediatric. And I think that it's because I'm a pediatric person and that's where our referral sources come from. So you've got to figure out where your referral sources are in order to really grow your practice and what you want it to be. Yeah, absolutely. So I know that you mentioned that you are in network with lots of insurance companies and Medicaid and, yeah. and everybody else. Is that where most of your referrals are coming from from this point? Like are like the websites of the insurance companies or are you also doing like heavy other marketing? We work in both South Carolina and North Carolina. We found, and this was a referral source that I found very, very quickly right when I got out of the gate. So when it was me and Julia and Carol, it was three clinicians and we were trying to build up a caseload. In North Carolina, the early intervention agency is called the Children's Developmental Services Agency. So originally they were like, no, we don't really want to take on a smaller practice. But then they were like, well, we really need speech therapists. So come on. And so had the flexibility to work with them. And so I would say the majority of our referrals come from that. So we have a lot of early intervention kids. That being said, Charlotte is and, and Fort Mill. So where I am in South Carolina, it's very beneficial that we have 
three developmental pediatricians that are in the area. So in South Carolina, there's the Medical University of South Carolina that we receive referrals from, but there's also two hospital systems in the Charlotte area, as well as a children's hospital. And so by having feeding experience for me, I know the NICU coordinators that are up there. And so I see a lot of post-NICU babies. So whenever they're coming home and being discharged, they'll call me up and they'll be like, hey, Carrie, do you go to this area? And I'll be like, I don't, but one of my clinicians does. And that's really helpful. But really establishing the relationships with specific referral coordinators in your area. And even for us, Charlotte is such a large area. Even now, the majority of our clinicians are kind of in the South Charlotte area and in the northern part of South Carolina. And so we really focus a ton of energy on coordinators within pediatricians offices, as well as those developmental pediatricians offices. A lot of our marketing goes towards a love fax blast because they are easy and they are cheap and you can send them out regularly and they go to the right people or they go in the trash, which, you know, it is what it is, but they have to see your name somehow. And then we also do marketing pushes probably quarterly where Mm -hmm. we go and take our brochures. We have our website that's updated regularly. We have Facebook. I love that Facebook gives you the opportunity to post ahead of time, which is really, really wonderful. So you can really do a lot of different things fairly cheaply. But yeah, the holidays is a great time because you can go to go to Aldi and buy, you know, 10 pumpkin pies and take your brochures and letter about your practice and go deliver it. And they're happy to do that and get some soap and put your brand on there. And that's pretty cheap too. So it's, it's really beneficial. If you get one kid from one of those pushes, then it ends up really making your name and put your name out there, which is helpful. Yeah. And then you get that return on your investment, right? Like you said, the, the, the fax blast thing, right? So if you send out how, like however much it costs and you said some of them get to the right people and some of them end up in the trash, if probably only one or two of those get to the right people, then that has more than paid for however much the push was and then some. Yeah. I mean, facts blasts are the easiest form of marketing to potentially go to the right person. And it takes you all of five minutes to create a black and white flyer. And then if you have a good fax machine, which I highly recommend, I have a great fax machine and I have everybody already plugged in where I can just scan it and it sends it out to everybody. So it, it, it's something that really takes me about 10 minutes. And I think it does make a difference. Well, and I think that a really important part of your, your piece of advice here is that you have to figure out what works for you and what works for your practice. You are trying to build this specialty around, well, you know, among other things, the pediatric feeding, right? So getting in with the NICU coordinators, getting in with the right people, because I I always say that you have your own ideal clients and other people have those same ideal clients, right? In other disciplines. So it's really important to hook up with those people and try to share some referrals that way. Speaking of that, that's actually a huge component of our hiring process. So for me, articulation, if I never have to work with an articulation client ever again, I would be super happy. And so I I tell clinicians whenever we're hiring them, I learned a lot from the different places that I worked at. And so I've taken a lot of the things that I really loved, like the flexibility and the clients that I enjoy and, and picking what I want and being able to get CEUs and these different benefits. And then some of the other things that I really hated and I get rid of them. So for instance, all of our clinicians 
kind of the way our referral sources work is essentially if you want the client, you just say yes and you put in your own schedule. Or you can say, nope, I'm not interested. And I think that that's a really beneficial thing because, you know, for me, I really love feeding. But not everybody does. It's the same way as some people really enjoy working with kids with autism. Some clinicians don't. You really have to foster the clinician that you have and that you've hired and making sure that they not only fit within your company, but also within your referral sources. And so I've had someone that I was looking into hiring who said, I really just, I don't like doing early intervention. And I'm like, you're probably not a good fit for us. And, and really just being open and honest and talking to them about that because happy clinicians make happy patients. There are a lot of patients out there. And if you are not happy, your patients will know it. You have to have that work-life balance. That is a huge component of our practice. We have a fair amount of part-time people and a fair amount of full-time people. They get to work what they want to work and see the clients that they want to see. And that is a really, really big component of our practice. And why I do feel like it's pretty successful is because if you want to work, for instance, I had a clinician. I had a clinician who her husband worked weekends but was off on Mondays and Tuesdays. And so she was like, can I work on the weekends? I was like, yeah, sure, honey, go work on that time. And you can go and take off Mondays and Tuesdays, be with your family, like spend that quality time, have those moments because you are more than just a clinician. And so have that work-life balance, be able to do those things because if you can't, you're going to get burnout. And that's a huge component of it. So we do a fair amount of things like that in order to ensure that we don't have the turnover because in our field, there is a high turnover. And if you can prevent turnover with your employees, that's really going to decrease the amount of frustration that you're going to see in the future. And retention is what we're talking about, right? I mean, one of the reasons why people leave jobs is because of not having flexibility and not having ideal caseload right? Pay is another component of that. But a lot of speech therapists, for better or worse, will put up with crappy pay (laughs) if they are doing meaningful work and that they have control over their schedule and everything else. So I think that it's really smart of you as a business owner to say, listen, I I can help you with these specific parts of your job. And, And because this is a private practice thing that we're listening to a lot of that's why a lot of people leave the school system, right? Is because schools, you, you don't have any real control over your caseload, your hours or your pay, right? So anyway, that's just kind of something to think about is why, why do people go into private practice? And those are some of the reasons, right? Not that your employees are going into private practice, because a lot of employees have no desire to do that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We really promote that optimum flexibility. Yeah, I think it's really, really important. What's next for the future for you? What do you see kind of happening? I know that we're, we're in a weird time right now because we're still in coronavirus at the moment. Yeah. It's early June at the time of this recording. But what do you see as like your plans for the future for the next year, a couple of years? Yeah, so we're actually super excited about it. So we recently got this office location that we are starting to see clients come in and that sort of thing. So that's really exciting. But we've recently hired a psychologist that has a lot of feeding experience. So one thing that take advantage of the market that you have, and I'm actually in the process of becoming a board certified behavior analyst. So we're looking to expand our ABA program, but also to really have that multidisciplinary approach. It's just been a huge component of it. When you have 
an interdisciplinary team that works together, it can make such a difference in your patient's lives. But also as a business owner, taking advantage of some of those different skill sets, it's so much more effective if you have one client that's seeing four disciplines than it is if you, you know, a kid who's going everywhere else. And a lot of our kids just can't transition. And so, for instance, we're hoping by the end of the summer, we're going to end up having ADOS testing because in South Carolina, you have to have that in order to have autism services through Medicaid. So it's just kind of one of those weird little quirky things. If you don't have an ADOS assessment, you can't get the services. So we plan on having an intensive feeding program. So we are really working to improve that by having... A lot of our clinicians have done the BITES course, as well as the SOS approach. Several of our clinicians are doing that. Up in Greenville, we have lactation consultants or a clinical fellow who's in the process of becoming a lactation consultant. Several of our clinicians down here are really interested in that and working with babies and including that as part of their discipline and and really having that comprehensive feeding that goes from birth all the way through geriatric patients. We do also work with Medicare. And so being able to really provide that, we're hoping to have vital STEM training and, and to go through and have that. In the future, like to also have a school. There really aren't that many areas for kids to go to where they can receive these multidisciplinary services for that birth, not birth, but you know, the the three to seven year olds, those kids that really need something else where the school system isn't really a good fit. They need those smaller classrooms and to really provide those opportunities for them. We're currently working with a day school already that plans to expand in North Carolina, but we'd like to open up something in South Carolina and for people who really need the assistance too. There are plenty of private schools where they're like, here, charge $30,000 a year. And we don't want that. We really want it to be something that can be affordable for our kids who really need the services. And luckily in South Carolina, there are different grant programs and that sort of thing and waivers that can help pay for those services for daycares, but essentially a skilled daycare. And so I think that would be something that I would like to do in the future. So there's definitely a lot of different working parts and things like that, but we're always trying to expand systematically. And I think that that's something that people can certainly look into. Where can I grow? What does my community need? How can I fill that? I think that's amazing. You're, you're, you're phenomenal. Like you're like the fact that you've had all this growth in six years. Now that I hear what your next couple years will be like now, it doesn't surprise me. Would it have surprised young Carrie, maybe grad school Carrie or CF Carrie that this is what you would be doing? Yes and no. If you go way back even before then, my mom had her own adoption agency and I did administrative work for her and worked for her for a long time. And so I saw a lot of these policies and procedures. And I I always knew once I started working for that one private practice, I was like, schools, not for me, but private practice. and, And I saw how ABA could work with speech, especially. And I was like, I want to be a one stop shop. That's what I want to do. And so did I think that it would be me? And 39 other people? No, absolutely not. But did I think by this point, would I have a private private practice and, and would I be able to pay myself? I was like, that was a big goal for me. And I've, I've achieved that. And I have a clinic now. Like these big major lifetime goals 
I can actually say that I've accomplished and I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. And to be able to do that now has definitely been a big dream of mine. So I'm, I'm pretty proud of what I've done. As you should be. I mean, the other thing that I really like about what you're saying is that like you've really grown your impact. It was this, the three of you in the beginning, your clinical fellow and your person who filed for you like four hours a week or whatever, right? Up to 39 other people and you've got plans to bring on even more. If you end up doing this whole school thing, that's going to increase your impact even greater. You're in two different states, credentialed with all of these different insurance companies, Medicaid, everybody, Medicare. Like that's incredible, right? It's your your impact has grown so much over the past six years. I can only imagine when you're having like your 10th anniversary, what this is going to look like. You, you're creating an empire, Carrie. I love it. That's the hope. That's the plan. That's, you know, it's funny though. Like my husband, he's very much so big picture and talks about the big picture and what it looks like. And he's like, look at what you've done, all these things. And I tell him, I work just as hard on the weeks where we don't get reimbursed very well as I do the weeks that we do. And so you do have to take a step back because when you are in the thick of it and putting out all the fires and you do, there are weeks where you feel like somebody asked me, what did I do on Thursday? I don't know. I, I was putting out fires all day. And so you have to be able to, take those moments and take a step back and look at what you're doing. And you're absolutely right. Like I sometimes forget that I, I have done this and that is nice when you have somebody else. And so my husband, he does that for me a lot where he's like, when you were just working for you, you were only seeing, if it was just you, you would only be working tops saying maybe 50 kids a year. Whereas with our private practice, we could potentially be helping thousands of clients a year based off of the amount of people. And that is not something I ever anticipated. And so that's something that really is quite wonderful. Yeah. And when you were talking about putting out fires, like you can't build buildings without having to put out some fires. Right. And that's really what you're like, I don't know, building a town or a city, or I don't know what you're building. (laughs) You're, You're building a lot. You're building an amazing business. And I think that you should be extremely proud of what you've done so far and excited for what's to come. We are. We're very excited and we've we've definitely got lots of goals. So we're we're pretty proud. Well, it sounds like you also have some plans in place to be able to meet those goals. And so I I think you're amazing. Is there anything that we either haven't talked about or any sort of last pieces of advice for people who are listening? So I would say all of those silly things that people say all the time, they're absolutely right. So you're going to have to wear many hats. Mm-hmm. I do. I wear tons of hats. You're going to have to put up the fires and they're going to feel like everything is burning and you have to be able to do that. It really does take a village to raise a child. And it's wonderful when you can be a village for a family and to help them with that. If it was easier, more people would do it. That's absolutely true. Same way as there are going to be plenty of times that you just want to quit. And especially in the first, for us, five years, there were plenty of times where I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And then you have to sit there and think about those kids and those families that are not just your kids, but also your clinicians and their kids and that sort of thing. And you have to sit there and say, who am I doing this for? Because you, you do have to step out of yourself and say, I'm doing this for other people to support other people and other people's livelihoods, as well as 
the kids that you're working with and kids in the future or, or patients in the future. And so take a moment to have some of that perspective because it's very easy to get lost in the trenches. And so take that time to really congratulate yourself and pat yourself on the back for those little accomplishments as well as the big ones. So find time to do that. I think that that's great advice. And you certainly have shown that perseverance over the years and taking this vision and taking like a, a circumstance, right. That was working for this private practice that like didn't know how to pay you and like things went to hell really quick. Right. And so you, but you took action, right. You could have been devastated by that. You could have been thinking like, Oh man, like the world is over now. I'm not going to get paid. Like, what am I going to do? Right. But instead you took action and look what you have created and also what you have to create going forward. So I think that you, again, should be very proud of the work that you've done. Good for you for offering these services to the people in your community, offering jobs to all of these clinicians and helping them have the hours that they want and the kind of kids. And also with, you know, all the continuing education aspects of it too, right? Being able to have them start to specialize because that's going to help them and it's going to help the patients and it's going to help you in your practice. Absolutely. And you really do have to see where clinicians are in their lives as well as where they are in their professions and work with them on that. I I had a clinician once, she decided to go and get her clinical doctorate and I was talking to her and I was like, hey, Cincy, what are you doing with your doctorate? Because I, I really see so much potential in you. Like, let me, let me talk to you. Let me help you. Let me work with you. And she was kind of stuck on her doctorate program. And so I talked to her and the other day she's finishing up her doctorate and she was talking to me and she's like, thank you so much for seeing that potential in me and what I was able to do. And you really do, when we're in this helping field, if you put your faith in others and you help them and you just generally act with kindness, you will see the results. And so I I really do, I have that in my office. It's a Mr. Rogers quote about kindness. And so if you act with kindness, then you are more likely to see results and your people will remember that. And so I really try and live by that. Well, I think that this is going to be an incredibly memorable episode and interview for everybody listening to have gone from the whole four kids on a Friday right? To a thousand sessions a month and 40 people working for you and all of these, these dreams. I really like, this was a very valuable episode. Thank you for sharing your story and your lessons learned and also your vision, because I'm sure that people listening can be like, wow, like if Carrie was able to do this and I'm feeling like I have that level of ambition, then I should be able to do it too. Absolutely. It can be done, but you know who you are, feel confident in who you are, act with kindness, but also find the right people. It does take a village and it is teamwork. You're going to feel like oil in the machine, but it does become a machine and it's it's a wonderful goal. And I, I hope everybody who wants to be in private practice can persevere and can do it. I truly believe they can. So I'm hoping that you're as impressed with Carrie as I am. Talk about a force of nature. How amazing is it that in the last six years, she's been able to accomplish everything that she has and grow this amazing team. She's got these two great specialties going, these two different wings of her private practice and bigger plans for the future. So there are some people in my audience who are really interested in just having a few clients on the side. And that is actually how Carrie got started. And there's other people in my audience who are thinking like they want to go really big. They want to have all those employees. They want to 
to have multiple locations. They really want to do this big. So if you're one of those kind of people, listen to the episode again. I've interviewed lots of people like Carrie who have these multi-location brick and mortar private practices, but everyone has to get started somewhere, right? So if you are ready to get started with your private practice, I always say that every private practice starts with one client. Carrie's did and yours did too. And the best way to start your private practice is by watching my free training, which you can head over to startyourprivatepractice.com backslash webinar to sign up for. It lasts about an hour and I promise that you'll learn more in 60 minutes than you learned in grad school about private practice. It's full of actionables and you will be able to know what you're getting into before you actually decide to start your private practice. Make sure it's right for you. Now that you've listened to this episode, you know that really the sky is the limit. One of the things I always say about private practice is that there's no ceiling on your income, right? There's no ceiling on what you can do. You're only limited by your time and creativity. And so someone like Carrie has really found a way to grow her practice to a pretty large level, and she has plans to grow it even further. So again, if you're the kind of really ambitious type who wants to go big on this, head over to startyourprivatepractice.com backslash webinar, and let's get you started today. Now that you've listened to the episode, I want to invite you to a free training. Do you have a business background? Most SLPs who go into private practice don't. You went to grad school, not business school. But here you are trying to start or grow a private practice. The good news is business skills can be learned and I want to help you make solid decisions on how to start and grow your private practice so you can serve your community and build a legacy while doing therapy on your own terms in your own time, and yes, make more money. I want to invite you to my free training specifically to help SLPs get the background information you need to know in order to be successful. There are two tracks, the start track and the grow track, because the needs of beginners and growth level private practitioners are very different. The trainings are short but thorough and can be consumed and put into action quickly. I want to teach you how to think, act, and behave like the private practitioner you are meant to be so that you can step into the vision you have for your private practice and your life. And the best part? These trainings are completely free. To register right now, simply visit independentclinician.com. Click Start or Grow and we can get started right now. Well, this episode might be over, but we don't have to say goodbye. Head on over to independentclinician.com for resources that will help you at each stage of your private practice journey. If you're on Instagram, let's connect. Follow me and send me a DM. I'm at independent clinician. And if you're on Facebook, make sure that you join the SLP and OT Private Practice Beginners Facebook group. All right, off to help more regular SLPs and OTs become successful private practitioners. Let me know if I can help you too.